Beloved congregation, the dedication of Solomon's temple was without a doubt the high watermark in the history of the nation of Israel. So what do I mean by that, boys and girls? It means that this was the best time in the entire history of the nation of Israel. They had a God-fearing king. There was peace in the land. The nation was established. And this beautiful sanctuary had been built. Thus far, they had a a sanctuary that was movable, the tabernacle. But now that they were established, God directed Solomon to build this magnificent sanctuary. It was the only sanctuary in in the entire world where the God of heaven and earth was worshipped. What a remarkable prayer Solomon uttered as he stood before his people moved by the Holy Spirit. And then we read together this dramatic moment when God showed his approval, when he sanctioned everything that happened, when he answered with fire from heaven, thereby dedicating the temple himself. But not only did God demonstrate visibly that he approved of Solomon's prayer and approved of that beautiful sanctuary, but also when he appeared unto Solomon, as we read together from chapter 7, verse 12, when the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. You realize, congregation, when God said to Solomon, I have heard thy prayer, that means that God is saying all the petitions that he offered up to God, God said, I will do as you have requested. So by saying to Solomon, I have heard thy prayer, God literally turned every petition of Solomon into a promise. And in subsequent generations, the godly would remind God of what happened at the dedication of the temple. And yet, if you read the entire prayer, Solomon knew, based on Israel's history, on their, we would call, on their track record, he knew that the possibility was very, very real that they would again depart from the Lord, that again they would seek out the gods of the nations that surround them, that as as previous generations had done, that they would forsake the Lord and his ways. And of course, the Lord knew that. That's why he said in verse 13, the text, the, the passage before our text, if I shut up heaven that there be no rain, when that happens, and if I command the locusts to devour the land, and if I send pestilence among my people. And then comes our amazing text. Because then it does not say, then I am done with this nation once and for all. Then I will dispense 
with this people. No, amazingly, he says, when I do these things, in response to their wickedness, in response to having forsaken me, when they do this, if my people, verse 14, that's our text, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And so we will consider together Jehovah's response to Solomon's prayer. In the first place, boys and girls, look at our text. Look at verse 14. First of all, we will consider the people he addresses. Notice how he refers to them. My people, which are called by my name. Secondly, the prayer he requires. Namely, if they shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And then finally, the promise he makes. If and when that happens, he says, and then we see three I wills, three I wills. I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So Jehovah's response to Solomon's prayer. The people he addresses, the prayer he requires, and the promise he makes. Congregation, it is so rich that the Lord speaks of this nation. He says, if my people... That statement alone, congregation, is, is a body of divinity. That statement alone reveals to us the very character of God. It reveals to us that God's purpose has always been to bring the sons and daughters of Adam into a personal relationship with himself. And God is saying, these people are my people. They belong to me. I have chosen this people to be my people. And he says, they are called by my name. That means they are my people. I have raised them up to bring glory to my name. I have raised them up to be a reflection of my glory. I've raised up this people that they should show forth my praises. And, you're, and we know, congregation, there was absolutely no reason why these people should be the people of Jehovah. When God dramatically led them out of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, and when at Mount Sinai He established His covenant with them, it was not because they were any better than the Egyptians. And of course, that becomes very obvious during the next 40 years when we see their behavior and their conduct. And God later said of the people of Israel, you are my people because I have chosen you to be my people. A congregation, so it is today. Because obviously what God is saying here about his covenant people applies to God's church today as well. Because in the Old Testament, 
the nation of Israel, was also the congregation of the Lord. They were the church of the Old Testament. And of course, as of Pentecost, then the boundaries are expanded. Then the Gentiles are grafted into the olive tree. So what God is saying here about his people is applicable today as well. A congregation, by this statement made to Solomon, God wanted to remind also Solomon of how extraordinary all the favors were that God had bestowed on this people from generation to generation. What a highly favored people they were. Now, we cannot make the application, as sometimes occurs, as if this applies to the United States of America. We cannot say in this text that God is saying that of our nation. Now, this specifically applies to the people of Israel, and it applies to the church of God that dwells in this land. And yet, congregation, we know, and I don't need to repeat this in detail, but we know that we too have been a highly favored nation among all the nations of the world. In the entire history of mankind, there has never been such a season in history. There has never been a nation where the church of God has flourished so much as in this land. And as a result, God has bestowed great blessings on this land. And yet, I do believe that we have arrived at a very tragic moment in history because we increasingly see alarming evidence of God's judgment increasingly being executed upon a nation that also is so indebted to this God for having blessed it with such extraordinary blessings. And then, of course, God alludes in verse 13 as what he would do to this people called by his name. Because ultimately what God is communicating to Solomon in response to his prayer that God would indeed use great calamities to bring his people back to himself. That would be his goal. That would be his objective. And we know from the history that follows that such calamities did come upon the people of Israel. We think of the history of Ahab, when for three and a half years God withheld the rain of heaven. Why? Because the nation had so utterly forsaken him. And because the nation so passionately were worshipped the Baal, the God of the flesh, the God that so conformed to their wicked, corrupt, and depraved hearts, the God they worshipped, the God to whom they attributed all their success and all their fertility. And then God, as the covenant God of his people, as the God who is committed to this people, called by his name, withheld the reign of heaven 
for three and a half years. For what purpose? It's to bring them to Mount Carmel, to bring them to that critical moment when Elijah, in God's name, asked them to make a choice. Who is the God? And the nation confessed. They repented at that moment as a nation. They confessed that he alone was the Lord God. The congregation, let's hope and pray that the calamities that are striking this land will not be in vain. Many calamities do strike this nation. We think of the the tornado outbreaks, the loss of property, the loss of life, the hurricanes that strike this nation, the earthquakes, all those calamities come from the hand of God. In Amos 3 verse 6 it says, Shall there be an evil in the city, and the Lord has not done it? And so all those natural calamities, all those natural disasters, all of these things are sent by God to call us back to himself and to bring us to repentance, congregation. That's why Jesus said in Luke 13, when they came to him and said, how about the people that Pilate slaughtered? What about these people? What are, and then Jesus said to them, well, how about the people who died when the Tower of Siloam collapsed? And then he said these remarkable words twice. He said, unless you repent, you will likewise perish, thereby clearly indicating that all of these calamities are manifestations of God's displeasure. And yet I can assure you, congregation, when we consider the sins of this nation, when we consider the alarming demonstration of human depravity spreading across this land as a plague, I can assure you that all the calamities that do strike also this land on a regular basis are but drops, drops of God's wrath, drops. And so God is still striving with this nation. But you know, congregation, that's the important part of, of our text. The important part of our text for today is that God is in the first place addressing us. He's speaking to us, his people. Because if there's going to be any restoration, if there's going to be any revival if there's going to be any healing of our troubled, sin-infested land, it must begin with us. That's the significance of this text. If my people, which are called by my name, and that applies to the people of God today, if by the grace of God we may belong to the people of this amazing covenant God, this amazing Jehovah. There's but one reason we belong to that people. There's but one reason why we too are called by his name. That's because it sovereignly pleased him to make us his people. 
But you see, that's what defines our responsibility. You see, God's sovereignty defines our responsibility. Sometimes we struggle and we talk about how, to, how, can, we, how can we make this jive. God is sovereign and yet we are responsible. But I think it's helpful to realize that when God sovereignly deals with us, when God sovereignly blesses us, that that defines our responsibility. That applies to us personally, that applies to our families, that applies to our congregation, and it certainly applies to this nation as well. The fact that this nation came into existence, that this nation has flourished as it has for the past two centuries, is because God sovereignly purposed that it would be so. And that's why our responsibility is all the greater. And yet, congregation, if there's to be any healing, it must begin with the house of God. Judgment begins with the house of God. And revival and restoration must begin with the house of God. Because God is not only calling the nation to repentance, but He's especially calling His people to repentance. And then I fear, and I include myself, I'm part of it, that God's church in our nation has become a sleeping and an unfaithful church. A church that has become so compromised, a church that has been intoxicated by the prosperity of our age. Then I fear that we don't have to go to Africa to find examples of what we call syncretism. What do we mean by syncretism? Syncretism means a mixture of religions. So what you often see in, in, in some of the, uh, in, in Asia and in Africa is that there is a form of Christianity, but it's a mixture of Christianity and their former pagan religions. And that's what we call syncretism. And what's happened in America, that includes me, I'm afraid that in many ways we have become syncretist. That somehow we have managed to worship God and to worship mammon at the same time. So that our lives have become an unholy mixture of the worship of God and the worship of the mammon of our age. And as a result, the church has lost its witness. As a result... We are no longer that shining light that we are called to be. We are no longer the salt, the, the seasoning of society, the preservative of society. We've lost our function. And so, congregation, when we consider the, the alarming decline of morality, the, the alarming manifestation of ungodliness in our nation that disturbs all of us, Instead of ranting about the Democrats, we have to look, begin with us. We, the people of God, we have failed to be who we are called to be. We have, become, we have compromised. We are just as guilty as the people of Israel 
of worshipping the idols of our age, sometimes even more than we realize. That's why congregation. So many people are saying 2024, as if that will be the moment that things will turn around for troubled land. No congregation. Oh, let me tell you, no politician can fix what's going on in our nation. We need revival. You know that I pray for it every Sunday, and I will continue to do so. And I hope you will pray for it daily. We need revival. If God does not revive us, if God does not revive his church, we're done. We're on a sinking ship. The history of the world tells us that with every power, every nation, every civilization, we see the same pattern. They rise, they shine, and then they decline. Corrugation. I don't have to go into any details for you to understand, hopefully, that that's, we are in the decline stage. And we've been declining much longer than we realize. Oh, let me emphasize. It's not that judgments are coming. Judgments are upon us. God is already judging our nation. To think that 50 years ago, when abortion became legal in this nation, that this massacre has gone on un uninterrupted until this hour. What a judgment. In Isaiah 13, God says, I will judge this world. I will punish the world for her arrogancy. And I will cause the means to come upon them. And the means were the brutal executioners, especially of young people, children, and even the fruit of the womb. That's the judgment that God would send upon Babylon, this mighty empire. That's why. And yet the Lord is saying, that's our second point, if my people, even though they have been my unfaithful people, but if my people to whom I have bound myself, if my people that are called by my name If my people, if they shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, my people, it has to begin with us, congregation. It's remarkable how the Lord instructs Solomon not only, but the instruction that God gives us about the disposition that pleases him, the disposition that honors him. And how does it begin? It begins by humbling ourselves before God. It means that we and me, you and I, it means that we take our proper place before God. That we humble ourselves before Him. That we take our place in the dust before God as transgressors of His law. That we 
own before God our own sin, that we would say what we find in Jeremiah 3, verse 25. That's where we need to come, we and our children. That's what we should do this evening when we come home, is bow our knees before God and say, Lord, we lie down in our shame and our confusion covers us. For we have sinned against the Lord our God. It's remarkable that in the the three, I call them the three chapter 9 prayers. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9. They have this in common. That they include themselves They recognized their own guilt. Listen to what Daniel says in Daniel 9, verses 4 and 5. And I prayed unto the Lord my God. Right? He's very conscious of that special relationship. And made my my confession, my confession. We have sinned. He didn't say, my people have sinned. He said, no, we have sinned and have committed iniquity. And have done wickedly and have rebelled, even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Congregation, we have no idea how offensive syncretism is to God. How offensive is a religion that is a mixture of some adherence to Scripture and then passionately worshiping the mammon of our age. That's will worship. Ultimately, it's but another form of idolatry. And so Daniel included himself. We need to include ourselves. And if that happens across our land, if that becomes our prayer, if across this nation God's people will recognize this and God's people will realize that we have contributed to this, we have failed. We have failed to be that light. We have failed to be that salt. We have failed to be the moral conscience of our nation. We are responsible for this because after all, when Jesus said to his disciples, you are the light of the world, Congregation, we are the only source of light in the world. God's people, God's church. This world lives in darkness, in moral darkness. We alone are the source of light. And then woe be to us when we hide that light under a bushel instead of letting it shine into this world. And so we must humble ourselves. No more excuses. We must come before God the way we are because we cannot fool him. We sang it together. He knows our hearts and he knows the secrets within. We must take our proper place before God. That's what David did in Psalm 51 when Nathan said, you are the man. That's what this passage is saying. We, we are the people of God called by his name, set apart by him, and yet we have failed. We need to acknowledge that freely and honestly before God. 
That's one of the marks of grace, congregation. Grace makes us honest. Grace makes us completely honest before God. Because grace makes us realize that we cannot hide anything from Him before whom all things are open and naked. Secondly, this is so beautiful. God says, not only must you humble yourself, take your proper place before me, but I want you to pray. I want you to call upon my name. I want you to seek my face. What a beautiful expression at this congregation. Seek my face. What does God mean by that? Maybe some boys and girls would say to me, but God doesn't have a face, does he? No, of course, God is a spirit. And yet God describes himself by using expressions that are related to our bodies to help us understand who he is. So what does God mean when he talks about his face? He talks about how he reveals himself to us. Often we can read in someone's face what they are thinking and how they are feeling. Sometimes our faith is like an open book. It will show either joy, it will show sadness, or it will show anger. It's interesting that the word face, the Hebrew word, is actually a plural form to indicate that your face is made up of a, of a composite of features that makes your face recognizable as your face. And so the face of God represents the total picture of his character, the total picture of his being. But what's beautiful is that in Scripture, God's face is always symbolic of his favor. In other words, it's God's revelation as a gracious God, God's revelation as a merciful God. And that's what God is encouraging the people of Israel to do. He's saying, when my people have forsaken me, when they have sinned against me, when I have come and judged them because of their sin, if they seek my face, if they come to me, if they seek me, as I have revealed myself in this house of prayer, he called it a house of sacrifice. If they come, as I have revealed myself in this house as a gracious God, because of the shedding of blood, because of all those sacrifices, if they come to me and acknowledge that they are worthy of my judgment, but if they nevertheless, having humbled themselves, if they plead upon my mercy, if they respond to what I have revealed of myself in the temple as a gracious God, they will not do so in vain. So actually you could say that the Lord Jesus Christ is the face of God. In Christ we hear the voice of God and in Christ we see the face of God. In Christ we, as it were, are able to look into the very heart of God. In Christ we hear God and we see God. So that's what God is saying. 
Even when you have sinned against me, even when you have forsaken me, even when you have been unfaithful to me, even if when you have committed spiritual adultery, you may come back to me. Humble yourself and focus on who I am. Seek my face. Seek my grace. Cry out to me for pardon. That's what Manasseh did in 2 Chronicles 33. When he was in prison, this exceedingly wicked king, that's what he did. He humbled himself, and he sought the face of God. And then it says, and God was entreated by him. God allowed himself to be overcome by Manasseh's petitions, and God was gracious to that wicked, ungodly king. That's the amazing truth that's expressed in this passage, congregation. That God is saying, no matter how much you sin, no matter how long you sin, no matter how you have forsaken me, when you humble yourself and you seek my face, and you come and you plead upon my gracious promises, you take hold of me as to who I am, as the God of salvation, you will not do so in vain. And Daniel understood that. He recognized that. Listen to what he says in Daniel 9.18. He says, we do not present our supplications before thee for our righteousnesses, because he knew they had none. But for thy great mercy. See, he was seeking the face of God. And so when it says in Hebrews 11 verse 5, that without faith it is impossible to please him, that's exactly what this means. Because he that cometh unto God must believe that he is. Must believe who he is in Christ. Must believe that in Christ he is a gracious God. That in Christ he is a God of abundant mercy. But you see, we will only see the face of God when we are in the proper place. To put it very simply... Only when we are in the dust before God will we see the face of Jesus with utmost clarity. And the moment we lose that place, then the face of God will fade from view. But when we take our proper place before God, and we acknowledge who we are before God, what we have done, And we then seek His grace and mercy. Ah, you see, how beautiful the face of God then becomes to a guilty, confessing sinner. Oh, how beautiful the gospel then becomes. How glorious that God is ready to be gracious to a repenting sinner, to a repenting nation. And then he adds one more thing. And turn from their wicked ways. That's, of course, very important. There's no such thing, you see, as humbling yourself and seeking God's face and then continue in sin. That's why the order that God establishes in this passage is so important. It it perfectly agrees with the passage that I will often quote from 1 Thessalonians 9, when Paul writes to the Thessalonians how you turned to God from your idols in that order. That's the order God establishes here in this passage. You must humble yourself. You must seek my face. 
And then you must turn from your wicked ways. We could put it very simply this way. God is calling us. And he's saying to Solomon, so it must be in the future when this happens. My people need to repent. They need to believe. And they need to obey me again. They need to forsake their sins. So what you have here, congregation, is again the exact structure that we find in Heidelberg Catechism. That structure is not the invention of the authors of the catechism, not the invention of theologians. That's the pattern of God's Word. Recognize your misery. Seek my deliverance as I reveal in my face. And then, as a result, as a fruit, turn from your wicked ways. And again, walk in my ways. And then, this amazing promise. Then, he says, when that happens, then will I. Three times, he says, I will. In other words, boys and girls, as if God says, you can count on it. You have my word. You can count on it. That if you do this, you will find me to be the God who I say I am. You will find me to be indeed a very gracious God. Then will I hear from heaven. Oh, he says, Solomon, tell my people that they will never seek my face in vain. They will never call upon me in vain. Isaiah 45, 19. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. And it is as if God is saying, you have my word, you have my warranty. That if you do so, if you follow my prescribed way by humbling yourself, seeking my face, forsaking your sin, you can count on it. That I will hear your petitions. I will hear from heaven. And that's even more gloriously so today. Because now we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is at his Father's right hand. Will he ever lives to make intercession where he ever lives to plead his own merits. Because you see, when we pray in this fashion, God, as it were, hears the echo of his own word. That's true prayer. True prayer is the echo of God's own word. You see, the more we are in God's Word, the more we read God's Word, the more our prayers will be formed by God's Word. And God loves to hear the echo of His own Word. Oh, He loves to be reminded of His own Word. He allows, reverently speaking, He allows us to tie His divine hands by His own Word and by His own promises so that he must do what he said he will do. And God is saying, you can count on it. As surely as my name is Jehovah, as surely as I, I am that I am, I will hear your cries. I will hear your petitions. I will hear from heaven. I will respond. Oh, God is saying, the repenting sinner will never be disappointed will never be turned away. It so delights God when we come to Him 
It so delights Him when we seek His face. Oh, we so supremely honor Him, congregation. You cannot honor God more than by coming to Him, pleading upon the finished work of Christ. Ah, you see, when we come to Him, trusting alone in what Christ has done, trusting alone in His finished work, then we are honoring God. Then we are exalting Him to the highest. Because then we are actually endorsing who God truly is. That's why He tells us to humble ourselves, to consider who we are. What does He promise? Not only will He hear us, no, He says, I will forgive their sins. That's who God is. That's what he promises in Isaiah 55, verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way. That applies to us personally as a nation. And the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord. And he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That's who he is. A God who delights in mercy. A God who is ready to forgive. And again, the, the Dutch is more powerful even. He delights to pardon. That's his delight. That's his favorite work. To pardon repenting sinners that turn unto him. That's the promise of the gospel. I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake and will not remember thy sins. And this God is the same today, congregation. This God is ready to hear from heaven and to forgive our national, our ecclesiastical, and our personal sins. And I realize the moral decline of our nation is dire. It's a lot worse than we even realize. We still live in our bubble. It's very, very serious. And yet, we have the story of Jonah. How amazing. In that culture, in that, hist in that part of history, Nineveh stood for ultimate wickedness, ultimate moral and sexual perversion. It was a bastion of wickedness. And yet God's servant comes, and he calls him to repentance. And Jonah admits it later. He said, I was afraid of this. He said, I knew that thou art gracious. I knew that thou art a God who pardons iniquity. He knew the character of God. He was afraid that by preaching repentance to them, they would actually repent. That's what happened. Listen, open your Bibles, read with me, Jonah 3 verse 8. This is a wonderful application uh, with which I want to wrap up the sermon this evening. Jonah 3 verse 8. And this is the king, the king an exceedingly wicked, an ungodly king. They were wicked. You talk about wicked leaders. They were wicked people. But this king says this to the city of Nineveh. But let man and beast be covered with sandcloths. He humbled himself before God. He, he set the example. Secondly, and cry mightily unto God. What did he do? He turned to God, and he sought his face. Yea, number three, let them turn everyone from his evil way. 
and from the violence that is in their hands. Ah, there you have it, the three components. He humbled himself, he prayed, and he said we need to turn from our wicked ways. And then it says it's so beautiful, so beautifully. And he did it not. He did it not. Jonah had said, 40 days and God will destroy you. When they repented, he did it not. And we know from history that God's judgment upon Nineveh was postponed by several hundred years because of that repentance. And the God is the same God today. From our side, there is no hope. And then we tremble. And we tremble to think that God may be done with us. That God may be the God who said, even if Samuel or Noah or any of those men appeared before me, I will not hear them anymore. There came an end to God's patience, also with the people of Israel. Oh, let's pray fervently. And yet God often chooses such dark, dark hours to glorify His grace once again. It has to begin with us. We, we who are called by His name, we must humble ourselves. We must seek His face. We must turn from our own wicked ways, from our own sins, from our, from our sophisticated sins. Our sophisticated sins. It has to begin with us. And then God says, I will heal the land. Ah, not only does He promise pardon, but He promises healing. But if we don't, if we don't, then the language is, is very clear. But if you turn away and forsake my statutes and my commandments, then I will pluck them up by the roots. And then there will be an astonishment, an astonishment. People will say, why hath the Lord done thus unto this land? And the answer shall be, because they forsook the Lord God of their fathers. And so, congregation, may God bless us. May we go home realizing what our solemn obligation is for us and our children. And that we would storm the throne of grace. And it is my desire and my concern that this would indeed sweep our land. And we've heard about the Asbury revival and we hear rumblings of other stirrings. Could this be the beginning? What a, a miracle that would be. And I'm not, uh, I'm not judging those revivals. I'm simply saying but one thing that impressed me about the Asbury revival is that the people of that college community had been fasting and praying for seven years that this would happen. It didn't just happen out of nowhere. That's what has to, that's what we have to do. Because the hour is late and the situation is serious. And then we know from God's word that God's patience and long suffering will come to an end. God gave the first world space to repent, 120 years. But there came an end. There came an end to his long suffering. There came an end to his patience. 
Proverbs 29, verse 1, He that being often reproved, hardeneth his neck, shall suddenly be destroyed, and that without remedy. And so, while, while God proffers peace and pardon, let us hear his voice today. If we humble ourselves and pray and seek his face, turn from our wicked ways, then this gracious, glorious God, for Christ's sake, will hear us from heaven, will forgive our sins, and will heal our land. Amen. Let's pray. O gracious God, O let us take thy word to heart, that it would bring us to our knees, even when we come home, that we would bow our knees with our children, with our wives, that we would humble ourselves and seek thy face, confess our sins, and cry out to thee for mercy upon us, our children, our congregation, our nation. For Lord, thou art a God who does hear the needy when they cry. Even when Nineveh repented, thou didst demonstrate what a gracious God thou art, ready to forgive. Our hope is in thee. And hear us, and bring us home safely, and gather with us again this Lord's day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.